You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 66 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show... I know I say it a lot. I know I talk about um, underrated players, untold stories, but I don't know if there is a player whose story is more untold or more underrated uh, than today's guest. It is Andrea Congreves, the greatest female British player of all time, the first uh, British player to play in the WNBA and a ridiculous career. Every time I look at her numbers, I'm reminded just how insane uh, what she did as a basketball player um, is. You know, you name it, she's done it. Her college career, um, she is just, she went to Mercer, had her jersey retired there. It's Hall of Fame at a school, Hall of Fame in the conference. Um, led NCAA Division One in scoring for two years straight in her junior and senior years. Averaged 25 and 10 over the course of her whole career. Just the numbers are insane. And then winning titles in Spain, Italy, uh, France over a pro career, as well as MVPs, as well as uh, multiple EuroLeague Final Four appearances. It's it's ridiculous that uh, her story isn't more out there and, and more people don't know about the things that she did. So I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, we went for two hours. I uh, try and keep these things a bit short because I know some people complain when I go long. But to be honest, when a story is as great as this, uh, I don't want to cut corners. and I don't want to do it short. I do think there's there's even space to do a part two because there was so much stuff we didn't get to, especially when we talk about the pros and, and the coaching stuff she's done since. Um, but yeah, I, I was honored to have her on the show and I'm, I'm so glad uh, that we got to do it. Just to note, the first 10 minutes, the video is very, very choppy. Uh, we did uh, stop and then restart the call and it clears up. So even though the audio is perfect, um, the video is a bit choppy to begin with. So you just have to bear with it. As always, uh, please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account. If you like what we're doing, if you want to support what we're doing, please check out patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you like to help us do the work that we're doing. We cannot do this without your support, so please go and check out patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. If you're listening on iTunes, take two seconds to give us a rating and review. It would be much appreciated. Literally, take out your phone right now, uh, swipe to the podcast player, and you will see the option to give a rating and review, and it would be much appreciated if you could do that. If you're watching on YouTube, um, leave a comment. Let us know uh, what you think about Andrea's career and uh, and whether you knew about the things that she's done and, and what you thought about the podcast. And if you want to speak to me privately, uh, drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. I reply to every single one and would love to have a conversation with you. Anyway, that is enough from me. Uh, here is this week's show with Andrea Congreves. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No, it's um, you know, it's it's crazy. Like I obviously did my research before the call, and you know, I've obviously looked into your career a number of times over the years. But every time I go back into the details and I go back into the numbers, like it blows my mind uh, just how impressive your career was. And I feel like it's so under the radar uh, in the UK specifically, where it's like you know there doesn't seem to be as much awareness of it as there should be. Which is why I wanted to do this because I just think um, it's fascinating. It's a story that you know definitely needs to be told. Um, I spoke to Paul Stimson on the podcast a few weeks back, uh, and he actually mentioned that he was, um, you know, the, the person to discover you, which I didn't even realize at the time. Um, so can we sort of go back to those early days and talk about uh, how you first got involved with basketball and how, how that came to be? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I was like 15, 16, um, and the school I attended in Surrey, didn't have basketball we only played netball or did athletics and I guess at the time uh, Basketball England decided 
we need to get more people playing, especially girls. And uh, Paul Simpson's from Surrey originally, for, like myself. Um, so that I guess they asked him to pick schools and go into these schools and try and introduce, you know, basketball at lunch times, um, just to get you know kids interested and see and go from there. So basically, it was literally one afternoon. My PE teacher said, "Oh, there's a gentleman coming in." Um, from England basketball, he's going to come in and do like a session. I think you'd be really good for it because you play netball. So, you know, it'd be kind of a slightly different, but I don't know that much about basketball. Why don't you give it a go? It's at lunchtime. Why don't you go along? So I thought, eh, all right, go on then, I'll go. Um, and uh, that was literally the beginning of it. He came in, um, maybe I think, I think he did like a, a whole term of basketball at my school. And I instantly, from that very first session, fell in love with basketball. I was like, this is something different. It's completely different to netball. Don't want to do netball anymore. I really want to play this sport. So he was like, well, you know, one session in a week is not enough. Why don't you come to Crystal Palace, where where they, they had, um, which was unique at the time, they had a basketball school, as they called it. So it was after school, um, travelled up to Crystal Palace on the bus, and... Uh, it all started from there because literally we went twice a week plus him coming into the school. So I was getting basketball three times a week and uh, that's where I got hooked. That's where I kind of fell into the club and it kind of took off from there. And so, so how old were you at that point? I believe I was 15, I believe. I was 15 at the time when, um, yeah, I think I was 15. Um, that, when uh, when he came to my school, um and then by the time I like actually got actively involved, which would have been the following season at Crystal Palace, then I was 16 when I actually started playing competitive games and things like that. I was 16 years old. And, you know, you said there that the basketball was something completely different to what you're used to and you hadn't been exposed to it before. Like, can you remember kind of what it was about basketball that you love so much in comparison to other sports that you'd been involved with? Well... I'd only played netball and I, you know, and I, I did athletics as well. So I was involved in an athletics club, but with basketball, it was the pace. It was the, the skill level. It was, it was just such an exciting game. I mean, it still is, but it was, it was things that you did in basketball that you, you couldn't in netball. You, you know, netball, you're restricted in your position and you can only go so far. Whereas for me, with basketball, everybody's involved at both ends of the floor. And I just love that, that just getting involved and, you know, making th different things happen. And, you know, yeah, it's completely novice and didn't know what I was doing. But I just enjoy, you know, running the floor and rebounding and finding open players and, you know, making shots. And, you know, just the whole team camaraderie was just, I loved it. So it was, it was an easy call for me to kind of not play netball anymore and and you know move, slowly move away from athletics because I was heavily involved in that it was just the buzz of the game that just got me and uh, you know I just couldn't get enough of it and in terms of like your sort of natural affinity for it your natural talent levels was there an instant taking to it where people could see that you had the potential to be very good or was it, you know was the were the early um your sort of early exposure to it, it was it was kind of a little bit you know sort of i guess learning on your feet and trying to work out what's going on kind of what was the i guess what was the balance between your your natural ability for it without really having been exposed to it and how much you had to work to kind of build up your skill level oh, let's be fair i had to work on it every day but 
what helped me was playing netball because some of the things you do in netball are similar to basketball in terms of positioning, you know, making so, you know, getting yourself open and, you know, your footwork and things like that. Those are kind of similar. So in that respect, it was kind of easy to kind of transition from one to the other. But in terms of the whole technical part of the game, no, I had to work on that every day. I literally, yeah, um, you know, <laughs> having, to, having to dribble basketball was, was my biggest enemy at the time because, you know, you don't do that in netball. You just stand there, pass, and move again. Whereas just doing those those small little things that you, you know, you naturally do now as a basketball player, it, I had to work at it big time. And uh, so it was a little bit of both, really. It was a little bit of, yeah, I can settle into this because I can move and I know how to do that. But in terms of all the other things that you have to do in in, in basketball, yeah, and I was at point zero. I literally had to learn everything straight away. Um, and it took some time, but, you know, eventually got there. And so then Crystal Palace, to give us a kind of lay of the land, obviously in that era, Crystal Palace were the dominant programme. Um, kind of, I guess, what was your progression from, from that discovery uh, through the school of basketball that, that obviously Stimson was heading up? Um, kind of what was your involvement in the game? Like, what, were, what was the state of the female game in terms of what level were you playing at? Was it juniors? Was there a senior women's team? Like, kind of how, how was your, uh, I guess, your weekly schedule in terms of actually playing competitive basketball? My, you know what? I... I believe, and I'll always say it, I was extremely lucky because they had a very, very strong club program from juniors all the way up to their senior program. They, you know, you had the likes of Mark Clark, who was with the senior men, women's team, sorry, and, you know, Paul Stimson was playing with the men's team. Um, so every week that you went in, um, the women's, they had a the women's junior program, they had, a, you know, men's junior program. Um, so when I went in, it literally transitioned from I do basketball school for like an hour, hour and a half. And then from there, instead of going home, I trained with the juniors when I first started. And then from there, um, you know, I worked a lot with, with Paul and with Mark Clark and then went training with the seniors. So it was literally, I got to the point when I was 16, 17, well, 16 in particular, I was training, I was playing basketball from four o'clock until nine on 10 o'clock at night on a Monday and Thursday. So I, I was, I was lucky in that sense of, you know, I got a lot of basketball quite early um, and I had some great, great coaches and I had a, you know, the, the women's program, the senior women, the likes of Claire Clark, Carol Parrish, Tracy Kinley, Tracy Whitney, all these guys were playing for, you know, GB in England and I was training with them twice a week. I was getting absolutely killed, but I was training with them twice a week. And for me, that's like literally jumping in into the fire. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot from, from those guys because, you know, you know, you couldn't ask for any a better education in, in terms of basketball. You couldn't have asked for anything better. So for me, I was extremely lucky. One of the things that, that strikes me is that, you know, you're talking about sort of playing at Crystal Palace from 85. You then made your national team senior debut by 88. Um, that is a very quick, <laughs> quick progression in the game, you know, over the course of, you know, three, three years. Uh, at what point did it really start clicking for you where you're like, wow, like I'm actually like pretty good at this? It didn't. It didn't. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I know a lot of people go, yeah, right. But I'm being actually honest. It didn't click for me 
until I think I graduated from university. It really didn't click because for me, in my head, I always said, I need to get better at this. I've got to get better at this. I've, I've got to, I started from zero because a lot of, a lot of the, the players I played with had been playing basketball for, for a amount of years. And I was coming in fresh, like never picked up basketball in my life. You know, don't know how to shoot, don't, you know, all these things. When I first started, even up until I went to university, I was still in my head thinking, I don't know what I'm doing out here. I'm, I'm just winging it. I'm literally just winging it. I'm just feeding off of what's going on around me. And that's it didn't click until, you know, my senior year um, when people were going, you know, you need to get an agent. You need to do this. You need to, you know, you, you can got the potential to go and play in Europe. Or, you know, and I'm like, what? Come on, don't, don't be silly. And then when it did happen, and I was like, okay, all right. The, the, I, I think I've, I've done enough. I think I've done enough to kind of establish myself and kind of go further. But it, it didn't click until then. And, you know, I was like 22, 23 years old. So it, it took a while. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, <laughs> amazing, the fact that, you know, you still didn't have that almost belief in yourself, I guess, until until after after you finish your your, your college career, which again was, was absolutely ridiculous. But before we before we get onto that, um, so you're at Crystal Palace, then you obviously ended up in Brixton as well for it for a year. So, kind of what what led to you leaving Crystal Palace and, and going to join Brixton, and and what was your experience with Brixton? I, I'm assuming obviously Jimmy Rogers was around. Uh, and like, can you kind of recap that whole situation, your yeah. memories of it? Yeah, um, basically what happened was um, Crystal Palace, the basketball club has decided to fold. So it was a bit of a shock to everyone because nobody expected it. And um, so it was like, so yeah, um, I had a long, long discussion with Mark, who was my coach at the time. And uh, he's like, look, I'm going to be going to Brixton um, and uh, coaching there. Why don't you come? And, you know, I trust Mark. I still trust Mark to this day. I mean, he, he's not only you know, like my first coach, but he's he's a great friend. We've put, it's turned into a friendship now. I can call him for anything. He calls me regularly, you know. So I, I was like, okay, I trust you. I trust in, in what you're doing. You know, I trust in my development so far. So, yeah, ended up going to Brixton and it was a great, great experience. It's, it's a club that I hold dear to my heart it's jimmy was great um he welcomed me with open arms when i got there um you know he always had a, a little bit of you know pearls of a of wisdom to, to pass on and and things like that and everybody that i played with there the whole the whole club structure i just fell into and uh yeah that, that that's the reason i ended up going there was literally crystal palace decided to fold and you know, Mark went to, to Crystal Palace. Some of some of the players from Crystal Palace went with him, um, and I enjoyed playing with them. So I was like, "Yeah, this is just a natural progression." And and yeah, off I went. And then the the other team I, I saw on your um, your list was London YMCA. Right. Uh, so what's the history of that? Because I I hear the YMCA spoken about in the terms of the history of basketball, especially in London, but in England as a whole, I feel like it was one of the earliest places there was exposure to basketball in this country. Um, but yeah, like so, what happened with with them, and kind of what was your involvement uh, with the club there? Um, so basically, um, Mark had stepped away after that year with Brixton, had stepped away to do other things, um, and. 
I wasn't sure personally whether I wanted to stay at Brixham without him there. Um, and so for me, we had, a, again, long discussion about what I wanted to do and um, how he felt and how I felt about how I was going to, you know, get more progression. Um, and it just seemed a fit to go to London YMCA. Again, we're playing with uh, the likes of Sadie Edwards at the time. Um, she played there, um, another England player. Juanita Davis was also there, another England player. And I wanted to surround myself with um, older experienced players that could help mould me. And that was my, that's the reason I made the choice that I did. Because at the time, once Mark had left Crystal Palace, a lot of the players that came with him also left and kind of dispersed to different clubs. But I wanted to make sure that I was playing with experienced players that I played at the highest level, you know, with the national teams and things like that. Um, and that's why I made the decision to go to the London YMCA. Again, and for me, another source of education in, in terms of playing, another you know style of playing. Um, and that's why I ended up playing there for a year. If you were to sort of, I guess, reverse engineer it and look back on those key years of your development as a basketball player, you know, obviously what you went on to achieve was unprecedented uh, and still pretty much is um, when we're talking about British players from, 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 well, from the UK that have gone on to, to do amazing things in, in the US and college. But when you, when you look at those key, what do you think it is that, that happened or that you did that has kind of separated you in terms of allowing you to go on to do those things? Were there any key lessons that you had or key learnings or, or was it just your work ethic? Was it coaches? Was it that exposure to older players? Like, you know, if you were trying to, I guess, almost replicate the formula, um, you know, when you're talking about developing developing younger players, like, what do you think those those, those key things are uh, in terms of your own development? Um, it sounds really corny, really cheesy, but it's two things. Um, one was my dad. Um, because my dad used to, traipsing me up and down the country to games and things like that. And my dad always said to me, listen, you got to work hard and you've got to put in the work and you've got to put in the effort because there's always going to be someone that's going to take your spot. There's always going to be someone that's going to be slightly better than you that's going to take your spot. Now, you don't want that. And I'm like, well, no, I want to play. I want to be on the court as, as much as possible. Um, even though I'm still young and still not understanding the game as, as well as I should, um, he always rang that true in my head. Every time we went on the road, every time we were going to a game, remember, work hard, give it your all, because someone's going to take a spot if you don't. The second you slip up and think you're, you've made it or you've, you know, you think you've done enough, someone's going to take it. And I, I lived with that credo every single day until the final day I stopped playing basketball. It was like, oh, no one's going to take my spot. No one's, no one's going to take that away from me. You're going to have to literally carry me off the court before that happens. And the other, the other part of that was Mark. Mark used to give me such a hard time from, from when I first met him to now, to now. He used to give me such a hard time. It was like I wouldn't even be on the court and he'd still be yelling at me. And I was like, okay, what have I done? And uh, Mark always said, the second I stop talking to you, be worried. Never got it. Didn't understand. I'm like, what was he talking about? I might not be happy if you stopped talking to me. It'd be great. But he said, you'll understand it later. He said, but the second I stop talking to you, there's going to be a problem for you. And I was like, 
what's he mean? What's he mean? So I spoke to my mum about it. I was like, Mum, what's he mean? And she was like, Yeah, it means he doesn't care about you anymore. He doesn't believe in you anymore. He doesn't, he's going to move on to somebody else. And I was like, Okay, now I get it. Okay, got it. And those two bits, those two conversations is what stemmed me to keep pushing, to keep trying to improve, to keep looking for avenues where I could become better and better and better because I didn't want to just be another person that you named years down the line going, oh, whatever happened to? I didn't want that. That, that was in the back of my head all the time. But I also wanted to challenge myself and see how far I could get. That was the biggest thing for me was, I don't want to be, you know, remembered for, you know, doing this, this and this. I just wanted to see how good I could get. That was it. Simple as. I just wanted to push myself and I don't like to lose. Simple as. I don't like to lose. I don't, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. And that drove me forward. It was, that was the reason I would get up at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning and, and go find a gym or, you know, outside throwing the ball against the, the wall, driving my parents crazy and things like that. That was it. Just those two conversations. Simple. Did you did you find that on the court in in England, uh, you know, whether it's with Crystal Palace, Brixton, uh, or London YMCA, like in terms of your own individual statistical output, kind of were you dominating? Like, was it quite clear that you were sort of a level above, you know, I guess players of the same age group? But then, you know, I assume you were competing against the women as well. So, like the players that were obviously ahead of you as well. I don't think I was dominating. I really don't. I mean, it, it, I guess you would have to ask other people. I really don't know. All I know for me was I would always set out to be a team player. That that was my thing. It, it was never about me being the player. It was for me was I need to go in there and do a job. If the coaches said go in there, clean boards, I went in there and clean boards. That was it. If, if they said, you know, we need you to shut somebody down, I did that to the best of my ability. It wasn't for me about being the main player, I don't. I, I really don't know if I ever dominated. All I know is, as far as I was concerned, if I walked off that basketball court, I gave everything I could for the role I was asked to play. Simple. That that was it for me. So, like I said, you would have to ask other players whether I dominated or not. I, I don't think I did. I just think I just went in there and did the job. Did you have? Um other players in England that you were looking up to at that time that were kind of your role models and, and sort of, I guess, inspirational figures? Um, for me, uh, even though we didn't play the same position, I always wanted to play the position she played, but Carol Paris, for me, because she did it all. She just, she was the, for me, she was the ultimate player because she could do it all offensively, defensively, and she didn't quit. She was one of those players that she would annoy people because she just wouldn't go away. It just seemed like she was running on batteries because she just, she kept going and kept going. And I used to model myself. I'm like, I want to play like that. I want to be able to to get in people's faces and, and, and just annoy them all day and, and, and push them to where I want them to go and, and to be able to score like she could score. I was I was fortunate that I got to play with her for two seasons, one at Crystal Palace and then, well, actually it was a season and a half, to be fair. Um that I got to model myself, you know, to get to play with her and, and to, to get a lot of experience watching her play. And and then also, you know, I got to play with her on the national team. Um, so, it, that, again, more education for me, but that's who I really looked up to 
when I first started playing. At what point did the reality or the opportunity arise that you could kind of see that going to the States and getting a scholarship was a uh, was a potential route for you? Um, to be honest, I didn't know about going to the site. I mean, that conversation had never been had. It was just that, um, obviously, Crystal Palace used to host the WICB over the Christmas over the Christmas break. Um, so when it came, when I think I was sixteen when they first came, and I, I remember North Carolina were there. Um, so Steve Butler was there, you know, and it, it was amazing. Everyone was like, oh, my God, you know, North Carolina, Steve Butler was playing there. And it was it was all crazy. And they um, they had um, a university, Wingate University women's team came as well. And uh, I was playing with the juniors at the time. So they had like kind of like a junior exhibition game and I was playing. And the coach came over and said, here's my card, you know, really interested for you to come to Wingate. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, are you mad? Like, there's no way I'm at that level to go and play. I mean, I'm looking at Steve playing for North Carolina and going, not at that level, never going to happen. You've got the wrong person. Um, and that's kind of where it really started was um, the coach there kind of went back to the state and guess he must have talked about me to other people he knew. And uh, it kind of, it started going on from there because then Mark was like, oh, yeah, we've had some contact from other schools, you know, interested in you. And I'm like, yeah, OK, come on. Don't be silly. Um, but that's where it started. It was literally at the WICB where, um, you know, I spoke to this one coach. And then, you know, before you know it, within the next season, the season after that, you know, I'm having regular conversations with Mark about, you know, there's a potential you could go to the, the US and play. And I'm looking at him going, like no I mean as much as I knew about the US college system which was very little at the time but I knew I knew a couple of players that had been I'm like I'm not at that level there's there's no way I mean that would be a dream but I don't believe I'm at that level so okay we can talk about it but we'll see and I, I dismissed it I literally dismissed it and then at what point did it change where you started thinking okay this is actually a reality like I could do this now <laughs> I think um, it changed when the phone calls started coming, um, which drove my parents to distraction because obviously back then people in the US didn't realize there was a time zone difference. So we were getting phone calls two, three, four o'clock in the morning and my dad's going absolutely mental because he's like, I've got to be up at five, half five to go to work. And these people are calling. And, you know, there were schools like Kansas, North Carolina, UCLA, um, which I must add, um, Mark was disappointed I didn't go there because that was his <laughs> top pick. He really got mad at me for that one. But, um, you know, I'll miss all these schools are calling going, you know, we really want you to come. And I'm like, no, nah, come on. No, not a chance. But then that's when reality kicked in. Like, this could actually happen. This This could be reality for you. You could actually go. Um, so then the serious conversation came about um, where, okay, let's consider it. Let's let's look at what you want to do, you know, in terms of education as well. And let's look at, you know, the type of school where you think you could fit in, you know, and do a job. And, you know, and that's kind of where it kind of took off. But, yeah, it was through the WICB and all of that that 
that all came about. And then, you know, within a couple of seasons, then it was like, okay, this is a serious conversation. Now let's decide what's the right option. And, you know, obviously in, 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 in that period, it's not like now where they can watch a live stream on the internet or find a you know an illegal stream of, of whatever game someone's playing in. Um, so how were they like? Well, I guess they were hearing of you from word of mouth, but like, what was the actual in terms of them knowing that you were a player? Were they coming over and visiting and watching your games? Like, how how did they get to a point where they had enough knowledge that they were sold on you and wanted to start having these phone calls and you know trying to offer you? It was it was, and it sounds so simple, but it was literally word of mouth because nobody ever came to the to the UK um, to see me play and I think a lot of the time they went through they spoke to Mark because obviously they knew he was my coach and um, they also spoke to Jimmy Rogers as well just to kind of well what's she like what does she do you know how tall is she you know these types of things but it was I never actually had anyone come and sit and watch a game um they may have had stats on me that Mark might have passed on or Jimmy might have passed on I don't know I've never had a conversation with them you know, um, but that was it. It was literally word of mouth. Let's take a punt. That's basically <laughs> how it came about. Really, that was it. That was it. That's unbelievable. And so, so did you? Did you go on visits? Like, did you have a top five or whatever else, or was it very much like you wanted to go to Mercer? You knew you wanted to go to Mercer. Like, kind of, how, how was that decision making process played out in your head? Um, I had the opportunity to go and visit. Um. But the way it all worked out, which is really, really off cuff, but I was still in my head, I'm thinking, I'm still not good enough. I'm, I, I want to go, but I'm not good enough. And I'm definitely not good enough to go to these big programs. You know, UCLA, North Carolina, these schools are big. They're massive. That's in my head. I'm going, they're massive. I'm going to get lost in the rush. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm never going to play. I'm probably just going to sit on the bench or whatever. You know, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll train and get better that way, but I felt like I needed to go to a smaller school where I could get a little bit more one-on-one -on -one attention because I still didn't know what position I played, what I was really good at or not good at or what, what have you. So I literally went to the States uh, and spoke to a guy named Ken Patrick, who was the, at the time head coach of the uh, University of Miami. Um, and I stayed with him for a bit, went on a visit, um, realised that Miami was still too big. And he goes, you know what? I understand what you're saying. You want to go to a smaller school. You still want to go D1, but you want to go to a smaller school where you get a little bit more attention on the court. And I said, well, yeah, that works for me. And he contacted a guy named Ed Nixon at Mercy University and said, listen, got a player. Um, he's looking for a smaller school. Um, you know, all the information. Went for a visit and signed. And that was it? On the dot. That was it. Wow. There was no part of you that thought you wanted to see more places or consider more places. Nope. It was very much. Nope. As soon as I, as soon as I got, as soon as I walked on campus, I went, I love it. I just, I just had a feel for it. And, um, I walked into the gym. It was this, it, the most pokey little gym ever, but it was just, it felt like home. It felt like home. And I went, yeah, this is it. And signed on the day. Wow end of conversation there was no more to be done <laughs> so then when you uh sort of you know moved out to the states how did you find that transition i guess both both on the court and off the court um it was it was tough it was tough um because you know i left everything behind you know my family my friends you know what I, the, the life i was used to 
And I literally went from being a London kid to being in the country where everything is so slow. My God, I, I struggled hard. The first, at least the first three months I struggled because the pace of everything was just so slow. And I was like, okay, can we pick it up? Can we, can we move? Can we do something? And they're like, no, this is how we do things here. And but I was like, oh my God. And I really did struggle with that. Um, and the only lifeline really I had was my uncle who lives in the States, but he was all the way in New Jersey. And from New Jersey to, to, to making Georgia is a long, long way. So it was a lot of phone calls to him. And thank, you know, thank God me and him are like this because he was my support out there because, you know, calling back to England, time difference, expense, all of that stuff, it was difficult to do. So, you know, luckily I had that support with him where he was like, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to settle in. Um, you've been here a bunch of times. You know what it's like. Um, yeah, New Jersey's a little bit different to uh, to Macon, but you'll be all right. You'll, you'll settle in. And once once the game started and, you know, school started and all that, it, it, I just settled in. It was, it became a routine then. It's like, okay, I'm getting up at this time, got class at this time, you know, got, got practice at this time. So those things kind of, it, it took a minute, but yeah. What would you say were the, the biggest differences that stuck out in your mind between what you'd been used to basketball-wise in, in England compared to uh, the US? Um, for me, it was how everything was regimented. When I played in England, you know, shut to training, train, have a laugh, go home. That's it. <laughs> that was it. That, that was my life. And then you go to the States and it's, you're a member of a team, this is what you do. This is how you present yourself. This is how we are. You know, we literally had a coach. Don't get me wrong. He was absolutely wonderful. But we had to eat together. We had to go to study hall together. Everything was together. And I get that in the sense of, you know, you're trying to, you know, have a team camaraderie. But I felt like, can I get a minute just, just to myself? <laughs> just, just do something different. But that, that never happened. It was always, you know, we always had to be together and we all, you know, and to a point, yeah, you get it, but to a point you're like, can I just get a minute, please? But, and it was the intensity of training. You had to be on it. From the second you stepped on the floor to the second you stepped off of it, you weren't on it, you're running. You got some sort of punishment, what punishment, but, you know, you're going to pay for not bringing your A game every single training session. And, and that was the biggest difference because I think with with playing at Crystal Palace and especially playing at Brixton, Mark knew I was developing still. And so he would, yes, he would yell at me and yes, he would push me to get better, but he would step off the gas a little bit if I needed it. He was like, okay, I see you're struggling. I know, you, I know you're learning. I know you're trying to get there. And I know you, you're working hard to do it all right, let's step off the gas a little bit. But there it was, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. You, If you didn't give up you, you, 100%, there were repercussions for it. Um, so that was, those were the, the, the biggest differences in the fact that, you know, everything had to align. Mm -hmm. Everything from, from you getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go run prior, prior to breakfast and then school and then after school, back, back training and, the amount of hours we put in back then, obviously it's, the NCAA has changed that since then, but the amount of hours we put in was insane because there was no restriction on how many hours you trained a week. So 
we could be in there from sun up to sundown on some days, just different things, whether it was individuals, whether it was, you know, in the weight room, whether it was on the floor, whether it was out on the track. It was, it was tough. It was tough. But it molded me. It molded me. It, you know, it, you got you got you into a way of thinking. Okay, if I want to get better, this is what I need to do. So yeah, those are the biggest difference, I think. You, you know, we've kind of spoken about the fact that they hadn't necessarily seen a ton of you before you got there. And obviously, when you got onto campus and started practicing, was there any sign that you know they were like a bit pleasantly surprised by you know this English kid that they had picked up? Uh, and was there any sort of, I guess. Um, was there anything said about the fact that you're better than they expected you to be, or were they where you expected them to be? Because obviously, you know, your numbers, which we'll go into in a minute, you're, obviously your numbers over the four years, even in your freshman, you're pretty decent. Um, so, like from their standpoint, they must be like they must have been pleasantly surprised, or I would I would think be a, a bit a little bit shocked by compared to their expectation, but or maybe they had higher expectations. I don't know, but like, can can you remember anything sort of around that? I think the only thing I can remember at the time in, in terms of expectation was I think they were a little bit undecided in position, I think, if anything, um, be, because, you know, I was, I was known for being a rebounder. That's what I could do. I could do that well. Um, but they were kind of trying to decide what position I was going to play because I started drifting out of the key, being at 6'2 at the time. You know, I started drifting out of the key and they were like, oh, okay, you can put, you know, you can put a 15 footer up. Can you go further than that? Or are you, you know, restricted to a 15-foot jump shot? Okay, then we'll work around that. So I think the biggest thing for them was not so much was I the player expected or was their expectation higher. It was more, what are we going to do with you? Where are we going to stick you? What, you know, how are we going to mould you into the team and get you to do things that we would like you to do or we would like to see? So I think that was the biggest thing. And, and poor Coach Ed, he scratches Ed every, every week, like trying to figure out where he was going to stick me because I wasn't your atypical post player because I didn't know how to do it. So, you know, if somebody said go in the post, I'd be like, all right, and I'd still step out to a, for a 15 for you know, it'd be like pulling his hair out. But what, what was, was your uh, preferred natural position? My preferred, but I, if you're if you're going to go, I would, I would, I was more of a shooting forward. Wasn't your power forward. I hate contact. I didn't like to be touched, to be honest. Um, but I knew after a while I could shoot the ball. I used to work on it a lot. So my preferred position was shooting forward. But obviously, over the years, that changed many times from what I wanted to do to what I was asked to do. So, like I said, you know, with things like that, you, I think what helped my career was learning how to adapt to different roles um, and not being stuck in just one. So even though I wanted to be a shooting forward, I, it was very rare that I was a shooting forward. It was, you know, I'm in the post or I'm, you know, I'm power forward or I'm, you know, even I had to, with the national team, you know, go all the way back down to point guard at one point. So it's, yeah, you, yeah, you kind of learn to adapt and, and adjust to, to what's been asked of you. So, you know, when those get, so, so I've got your numbers in, in front of me, right? So freshman year. You average 15 points, uh, 10.6 rebounds, 1.3 assists, 1.5 steals, and 1.3 blocks to boot. Um, shooting 55% from the field, which again, is, it's not too bad. Were you, like, it, it surprises me talking to you that it feels like 
a running theme has just been a lack of belief in yourself and on and thinking kind of how good you were. When you got onto the court in America, you know, obviously you had an expectation of kind of what the level would be and, and whether or not you'd be able to match up to it. But then when you're producing those numbers objectively in your first year, did anything in your mind start changing of like, oh, actually, I can hang, I can hang here. Like, you know, this is this is okay. Maybe I've got a shot at, at, at doing more in basketball. Or was it very much still like you just want to take it as far as you can go and see what happens? Um, to be honest, and again, it sounds really cheesy, but I didn't know my numbers. I didn't know them. I didn't know my stats. I didn't even know my stats all the way through to I think my senior year. Um, it was just that what people would tell me, oh, you had such and such tonight. Did I? I wasn't. I wasn't focused on that. That was never ever my focus. And I know people probably won't believe that, but I never focused on points. I just focused on getting there, do your job, do it well, get off the court. That was it. So, um, like again, my my freshman year, I wasn't aware of any of that. It was just do your job. Just just do what the coaches ask you to do. Get in there. Work hard, you know. Try, try and find. My my belief was always try and find the right player. Try and try and make the right pass. You know, if the ball, you know, the ball comes off the rim, go get it. That was it. Simple as it was. It, I kind of always tried to have a simple mind view going into every game. It wasn't okay. I need to do this. I need to. It was just literally do what the coach is asking you to do, and go from there. So I never really focused on. Any any of my stats, whether it's rebounds, blocks, points, never never came into into my head at all. Never thought about them. Just wins and losses was the only thing that mattered to me at the time. I just didn't care. I just wanted to win. I really wasn't focused on myself in terms of okay, yeah, I can do this. It was just I I was enjoying what I was doing. I was I just loved every minute of being on the court, and it was just go out there and enjoy it, have fun. Do your job. Did you find did you find the American game more physical, more athletic than the English game? Like, how did you how do you compare how did you compare the two at that time? Um, I was actually surprised I didn't get hit as much as I thought I would in in the American game. It was more athletic. You it had to be quick. You had to you had to be well conditioned to 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 make it because we ran a lot we ran a lot a lot of our game was based on hitting people on the fast break and being as quick as we could um and then i that's what i think where i struggled when i came back to england you know in, in terms of being involved with the national team when you come back to the national team and you get absolutely mullered on the floor you know every single game you play and you go back to the stage you're like, ah oh, you know this is great i'm not getting hit anymore <laughs> yeah i hate getting hit so it was much more athletic and we worked a lot on our conditioning throughout the season. We were always up first thing in the morning, working on conditioning, you know, on the track, on the court. Those are the things that we always worked on. So those kind of things didn't happen when I played in Europe or when I came back with the national team. It was more about your physicality than it was your athleticism. So those are the definite differences. Obviously, your numbers in your freshman year are pretty solid, and then from there it accelerated pretty quickly. Uh, you know, you're averaging twenty, basically twenty five a game next season, twenty five and ten, and then in your junior year, uh, thirty three a game with just short of twelve rebounds, and then thirty one ten in your in your senior year led led uh, NCAA Division One in scoring um, in both those years. What do you attribute that 
big jump from uh, going into your second year? Was it just a case of sort of getting more adjusted culturally to living in America and the lifestyle and then obviously on the court as well? Or was it something else in terms of your own uh, development, working with coaches or working on your own game um, with workouts? Um, it was change coach. Um, we had a change coach. We had uh, Lee Henry come in who, you know, played for Tennessee. He's a gold medal winner herself. Um and she came and she changed the structure of the team. Um, and basically, she had watched film from my freshman year and basically brought me into the office. We had a one-to-one. She was like, you could do more. You could definitely do more. You're holding back. And I, I really didn't know what she meant by that. I was just looking at her going, okay. But she said, you can definitely do more and I expect more and you're going to give me more. And that was basically the conversation we had. Um, so coming into my sophomore year, she... Uh, Without kind of took my home, she kind of based everything around me. So pretty much every offense that we ran, I at least had to have the ball in my hands at least two or three times going through each offense, um, which was new to me because I, I, I felt it really hard to kind of adjust to that because I'm like, I'm not used to you giving me the ball so much. I'm used to the, being the one that gives it, up, gives it up and finds the right player. Um, but... There was myself and a, uh, and a girl that came in named Yana from Finland. Um, she based everything around us, and we were we would flip flop each game pretty much on who was like top scorer or what have you. Again, don't know numbers, but I just know you know. Obviously, I was told after games and things like that. Oh, Jan had this much, and you had this much, and I'm like, oh, okay. But um, that's kind of where it all changed because you know Lee was like, no, we're not having this. You know, we want to win. We want to changed the program around because we had a, a losing year the year before she was like no we're going to turn that around we were five and 25 for my freshman year we went 25 and five the following year she was like yeah we're going to turn this around so and that's where it all kind of changed and evolved and you know obviously as years went on like my sophomore year you know i had a decent year and then going into my junior and senior year she was like i want more i want more i want more you can do more and that's kind of where it went were you getting uh, any type of sort of national attention, press attention, media attention? Uh, like, I would assume at some point it must have started because the numbers you're putting up are just ridiculous. Um, my, my, it would start, I would say it started my junior year. Um, so obviously finishing off my sophomore year, and we had, you know, we had, as a, as a team, we had a really, really good year. Um obviously the attention started then because they're like, oh, you're going, you know, you're going into your junior year, you know, how's it going to be? You know, the team around you is pretty much the same. Um, you know, we've added a few freshmen, but you know, we're a pretty solid unit. How, you know, how, you know, what are you going to do this year compared to what you did, you did last season? Um, and then, you know, the media followed and it was, you know, after games, you know, people want to talk to you and I'm like, what is this? Like, really? Like, come on. You can pick, you know, I could pick a handful of players on my team that you can talk to, but they wanted to talk to me, you know, how things going. And, the, and I think they also liked the added fact that I was British. I had this accent and they wanted to hear that, and, you know, down in the South, they're like, oh my God, you know, it's amazing, whatever. So I was like, but um, yeah, it, it started, I'd say, beginning of my junior year, you know, pre-season going into the season. And then it, it kind of escalated from there um, once you know, the team were doing really well. You know, we started getting local attention. And then I think 
think it was midway through my junior year that um, USA Today came and wanted to speak to me and I'm sitting there blown away going, wait, I even know what USA Today is. I, 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 I know it's a, you know, international paper. And they wanted to speak to me. So I was kind of like, then it was kind of, okay, this is a little bit too much. I don't like this. But you kind of had to take it on board because you kind of run away from it because, you know, after games, they're still, they're right there waiting for you. So, yeah, you kind of had to deal with it, but it wasn't something I was really comfortable with, but it's kind of part and parcel of what you do. Uh, at what point did you start thinking maybe you could be a professional basketball player? Like, is that is that started coming in your mind? I mean, you'd think you're averaging yeah. 33 and 12 in Division One. There would be some thoughts floating around of like, oh, maybe I could do this for a living. Or is that still not even on your radar? Not on my radar. It wasn't on my radar. Never was on my radar. It wasn't on my radar until my senior year. And that literally came at the end of my senior year. It didn't, again, to understand me, my thought process had always been, I just want to be a better basketball player. I just want to get as good as I can get. It, there was no conversations or thoughts of going to play pro. What do I do after this? You know, my thought process was, I'm going to get as good as I can get and I'm going home. That's it. That's that's the only thing I thought about. You know, and when I go back, you know, I want to show people at home, I want to show my family, I want to, you know, show my coaches and people that, you know, had trusted in me and put a lot of faith in me. I wanted to show them what I could do. That was my thought. It wasn't about going to play pro. It never entered my head and it only came about through my senior year. And then on my senior year, it was then... Um, I was honoured to be, you know, named an All-American. But they turned around, you know, literally went to Atlanta and uh, all these agents came out of nowhere saying, you know, we had to sit down in this room and there's all these agents like literally pitching their, their companies and things like that, saying, you know, sign with me, sign with me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So what are you, what are you on? Like, sign with you. And uh, then it, then the conversation had to start. Then it was you could actually be a pro, Andrea. You could actually go and earn money doing something you absolutely love. And I was like, all right then, all right, let's put this put this into thought. But again, still thinking, am I good enough? I know I've played, I know I've played in the States, but actually, am I good enough to go back to Europe and, and, and play professionally? Can, can I do that? And so, you know, the doubt was there, but I think that doubt is what drove me forward was, okay, come on. Push on. Yes, you can. I'm sure you can. Come on, let's give it a try. Even if you play one year and see how it goes, go from there. And that's basically how it came about, yeah. Was there knowledge in England at the time of, of, of the, you know, there's this British player in the States that's just doing very, very well? Like, did you hear of anyone back home that was kind of saying, oh, we hit, we've heard you're doing well? Or, or were you very much just isolated on, you know, on, on your ones, uh, just going through the motions without any sort of knowledge with people back home knowing what, what, what was going on in the States? I have no idea. I actually have no idea. The only the only people that I know that, you know, knew what I was doing were one of my parents and my family, because yeah. obviously I spoke to them and Mark. Um, and the only reason I think Mark knew is because he was in contact with my coach in terms of like the national team program, because he was head coach at the time. So it was, you know, the national team program, as Andrew doing, you know, you know, is she well? Is she, you know, she, you know, she playing well and things like that. What are her numbers? So I think the only actual person outside of my family circle and friend circle 
was Mark Clark that that knew what was going on and, and potentially Jimmy Rogers maybe, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I really don't know. Were you were you playing for the national team uh, during the summers whilst you were at college? Um, yeah, I played. I played twice. I don't because they didn't have. I didn't have Europeans every year. Yeah. Um, whilst I was out in the states, um, so I played twice. I came back during the summer. Um, and that's when we played in the off-cuff Commonwealth Games, as people want to call it now, um, in Edinburgh. So I came, I think I was 21 at the time, so I came back for that and came back for the Europeans, I think the year before that. So that that, that, that was the 91 Commonwealth Games. So you, 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 you won a gold at that one, right? Correct, correct. What what did it mean for you, kind of, I guess, representing your, your country? You know, like one of the sort of, well, you're the only... You're the only uh, player to have played through for, for, from the females to have played from the original GB programs when there was the Olympic qualifying tournaments and stuff through to then the new era uh, in 2006, 2007, obviously in the run-up to 2012. So yeah. like, but then of course, during the middle of all of that, I think it was, I've got it here, like, uh, so from 1998 to 2006, there was no uh, GB program that was that was running yeah. at all. So um which kind of leaves a lot of what ifs where, where, you know, when you're talking about your international career in terms of representing the national team, I spoke to John Atkinson beforehand, who's obviously the historian guy and gives me all the stats and, and, and numbers. And he was saying, you know, that it's, it's very possible that uh, you could have been well over 200 caps if, if there'd been uh, actual a program for you to compete in uh, and play yeah, yeah. at the time. When you talk about sort of your, I guess your, your national team career, um, what did it mean for you to represent your country? And, you know, obviously when you're at college and you're doing all these things, there are some colleges that don't necessarily are too keen on their players going and then in the summer and playing other competitions because they're worried of injury and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, you still made a point of of doing it. Can you kind of talk about your feelings around uh, representing your country? Oh, it was for me. It was the, the highest honour to to play for England. You know, and it's not about just putting the shirt on, but for me, it was the highest honour of actually you know standing out there representing your country. It, it, it was it was everything for me. If, if there was a goal. That was that was my goal was was to represent my my my, uh, my country and and to be able to do that was was massive for me. Um, but therein like you know there was a problem because obviously you know I'm attaching my university. I've signed for them um, and they were very hesitant on allowing me to travel back to the UK to um to play with the national team in the summer um you know injuries things like that you know all things could pop up and obviously lee was it took a lot of persuading from mark a lot of phone calls to get her to say okay you can you can go play for the national team because i used to badger all the time like i want to play i want to play it's it's you've done it you understand it because you know she played for the usa she's got her gold medal i'm like look that's all i want to do i want to play i want to play for my country and if I've got the opportunity to do so, and I've been called upon to do that, I want to go. And it took a lot of badgering. It took a lot of phone calls from Mark. It took a lot of phone calls from Basketball England to get that to happen. And fortunately, um, with a lot of persuasion and a lot of assurances, um, I was able to to travel out, you know, in two different years to, to go and represent England and GB. Well, it was England time, wasn't it? I assume that kind of because you're you're in the in the US college system, you hadn't seen a lot of your peers 
uh, sort of come through and develop at that time. So, so the national team was a time for you all to get together and kind of see the progress of uh, of each other. Who were some of the names that stand out for you, like teammates that you had during during that period where you know maybe you came back and you're just like, yeah, you know, we've got a, some some talent coming out of England or, or GB. Um, I think at the time when I came back, um, from someone from my age group was uh, Gaynor O'Donnell. Um, she was she was out, you know, starting point guard when I was, you know, with the under seventeens and under nineteens program. Um, and to see her still involved with the program, even though she didn't go to the states until after me, um, was good to see. But when I came back, it was still as I call them, and I hate me for saying it, but the old guard was still there. Like the Claire Clark, the Tracy Kingleys, the Tracy Whitnalls, Carol Paris, all those guys were still playing. So um, there was there was very little space for younger players at the time. So myself and Gaynor were the only two that I can recall that actually kind of broke through because it was, it was difficult because of, you know, where we played and the positions we played. They still had very experienced England players still in, you know, the peak of their career. So it was very hard to break through at that time. So we were kind of brought in as, yeah, you're just going to be a relief for them when they need a few minutes, go in, run around, expand some energy and then come back out. Um, so, you know, when we did come back, um, it was, it was, uh, it was difficult trying to settle in. It was difficult knowing that I know I'm better. But am I as good as you are? Are we at the same level? Am I better? I don't know. Um, and again, you know, I, I never questioned. I never questioned Mark or any of the coaches. You know, assistant coaches or anything like that. It was, he's asked me to do a job. I'll do it. it doesn't matter. So you, so you ended up with you had 15, 15 caps for GB in the end, and, and forty for for England. Oh, we've lost your phone. <laughs> um. When you look back on your, your national team career, what are the standout memories, games that come to mind if I was to ask you to pick a couple? Wow. Um, for me, I guess the standouts will always be, I think, one, when when we won the gold in Edinburgh. Um, that's probably got to be, and the reason I say that is it's got to be one of the hardest games I've ever played, that gold medal game, because I was having an absolute howler in the first half. Um, and I, and I, you, you'll, you'll agree with me if I say it, but literally that whole halftime speech was at me. Mark literally went to town on me. I and I thank him for it. At the time, I didn't, but at the t- you know now thinking back on it, I needed it. But you know, he put me in for, to play a specific role, and I wasn't getting it done. And uh, it stands out because of what he said. It's how he said it, and. You know, the rest of the team is just sitting there, <laughs> just looking at him, and he's literally just absolutely caning me. But we went out, and I had a better second half. And I would like to hope that I, my performance helped to win that gold medal. But that stands out to me as it, it told me that I can be better. I, I, I am okay at this. I can do things that others are doing and I can go further with my career I can do the things that all these people are saying that I can do and I didn't believe it but it was just that switch I needed um, and he got it out of me 
and and for me that's that's what it was all about for me and then i think when we won that bronze in melbourne it meant so much for me personally but it also meant a lot for 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 basketball england because it was a stepping stone we needed for 2012 to happen and to be part of that makes me extremely proud that I was able to help and assist and, and get the program to where it wanted to go, which was 2012, you know, be represented at 2012. And that was the stepping stone we needed because I remember speaking to Brad Miller Turner at the time and, you know, the conversations we had about what was needed, where we needed to end up, where we needed to finish in order for, you know, FIBA to even consider it there was a lot of pressure but to get it done was massive and i'll never ever forget that it was it was such an amazing feeling such an it was an amazing group um that went out there those kind of stick out for me obviously my my debut at 17 um in portugal playing against israel never thought i would get there never thought you know this would happen and to be able to go out there and, 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 and represent your country at that age, in, you know, in a, in a tournament, it kind of gives you some sort of belief. Even though it took a while for me to kind of really click on and push on, it, um, it was the beginning of me going, OK, I can do a little bit or something. <laughs> so. Do you follow the Great Britain senior women's team now and kind of keep up to date with their progress? Obviously, the 2019 the Eurobasket uh, performance where they finished fourth um, was pretty historic. Um, you know, how kind of, I guess, in touch with it, with the program are you in terms of following it and seeing kind of their progress and tracking it? Um, yeah, I, I, I always keep keep up with, with what's going on because obviously, you know, you still... Even though I've retired a long time ago and things like that, you, you still feel part of it in, in a sense. You feel that pride, you feel that passion for them going out there and, and, and representing the country. So, yeah, I, I always keep up with it because for me, I always like to, to see who's coming through next, who, you know, watch the next crop and how they're, you know, how they're, you know, evolving the game and involving us as a nation. Um, so I was extremely proud to see, see them um, really achieve great results. Um, and I was rooting for them the whole way through, you know, I was watching every single game, you know, live streaming it and things like that. And to see them get there and, and you're thinking, come on, push on, let's, let's get it done. It, it's, it, it, it thrilled you because, you know, I have people I, you know, I've, I've watched and they've paved the way for me. And I hope that my, my era paved the way for these guys and, you know, they are now going to be paving the way for younger players that can watch and go, look, we can actually do something here. We can actually compete with, you know, the best teams in Europe and, you know, potentially the world. So it, it makes me extremely proud. And, I, you know, like I said, I always keep up with it because, you know, I want to see the next group come through. I want to see how we progress. You know, it's it's I've had my journey. I want to see theirs. I want to see where they go. So, yeah, I, I definitely keep up with it. Do you think the the younger players coming through have an awareness of who you are and what you've done? Probably not. And I don't expect them to, to be honest. I really don't. I mean, my career was years ago. I mean, if, if you're going to be, if you're going to, for me, if it was me, if I was looking at players that have played 
that I played now or I've played slightly before, you know, you're looking at like the Joe Leadens, you're looking at Temi, you're looking at those guys. Those, those are the players that if I was that age, that's who I would be looking at. I would be looking at someone that's been way down the line. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. So I wouldn't expect that. I really wouldn't. But do you, do you not think that, like I always feel like the history part of the game is something that's really the historical part of the game is really part of something that's really missing with with the British game in terms of creating a culture and knowing what's come before, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and like you know, like I've said multiple times in this interview, the the career the career that you've had hasn't like I think it's you know it's 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 very unique uh, and it's a story that needs to be told. Has there been conversations at all with I know like you're obviously involved with the under twenty women's program uh, in the late two thousands, right? Was it two thousand eight ish? Um, yeah. But has there been conversations, you know, whether it's with the federations of bringing you into sort of any training camps or things to kind of talk to any of the players coming through and, and sort of tell your story at all? No, no. never. Um, and that's their choice. I mean, I'm not, I'm not upset about it or anything like that. That it's their choice. If they if they want to, then then fine. If they don't want to, then it, it, you know, it's it's their decision to make. I think the only I go. I refer back to Mark again because, like I said, it's, we have that bond. But the only person that's ever asked me to do anything like that has been Mark, and that's been at Barking Abbey, where you know he's had players that are considering going to the states or going to Europe or things like that. And you know, as he says, he talks until he's blue in the face. But he'd rather have somebody else that's been there and done it to come in and kind of have that conversation and kind of just give some advice and things like that. So in terms of you know, kind of trying to give back and things like that, that's pretty much where it's it's been at in terms of talking to, to players. You know, I've, I've talked to a few, especially at Barking Abbey, you know, some outside of of that um, academy, but that's pretty, pretty much it, really. And am I, am I right in thinking, like, right now, like, uh, you're not involved with coaching at all or basketball at all, or are you involved anywhere? No, um, I finished at University of Nottingham last year. Yeah, last year, um, and just taking a break. Just it it it's been the first time in in some years that I not been involved in 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 basketball one way or another. So it was just it was just um, taking a break, you know, being spending time with my family and and you know just being a regular person as you want to call it. But um, yeah, it's, it's this is the first time. But obviously, you know, me being me, I'm itching to get back in. And uh, get involved again. I, I just—it's uh, what I—it's what I love to do. I love giving back, and I love to help with the younger generation coming through. Um, to to see them progress and to see them try and you know attain their goals and their aspirations. That's that's always been big for me. Been key for me. Um, you know, I've had my journey, and now it's time for for this younger generation to have their journey and, and to see where they can go. And uh, for me, that that it thrilled me to, to you know even play a small part just to you know even if it's advice or just getting on the court and helping with whatever um that's kind of where i sit at the minute would you like to be involved with uh, national team programs whether it's juniors seniors uh, at some point in the future oh absolutely um that's, that's always that's always been a goal of mine you know I, i've been fortunate that i have i have been you know involved with it with it in the past um yes i'd like to be involved with it again but you know, again, it's 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 down to it's down to coaches and their personal choices. It's it's not a matter of me, you know, walking in there going, yeah, I'm here, come on. It's you know, you, you got to be able to work with the people that you brought in, and 
if coaches want to go in a different direction, then that's, again, their choice. So, mm. you know, you can't really get too, too upset about that. But, you know, my aspiration is to be involved in once again at some point. I, ho- I hope that happens. It, it seems like a, yeah, it just strikes me that someone of your experience, some of your, um, with your resume is not closer to, uh, you know, all of these, these talented players that we've got coming through um so i do hope there's you know there's a there's a way in the future that that uh you can be back involved for sure so jumping back jumping back to the the, the career timeline so you're in your senior year you've kind of been named an all-american top top 10 player in the country um you've led ncaa division one in scoring for two straight years uh you've got agents contacting you when you finished college and then you're making a decision about what's next you know Making the, I mean, first of all, making that decision to, I am going to pursue this and going to be a professional basketball player, and then signing that that first professional contract. Kind of, what are your memories uh, around that, and sort of how that process went. Um, it actually went quite quickly because um, it, it was it was actually frighteningly fast because at the time I was injured. Um, by the time the um, the final fours took place, um, I just had um, total knee reconstruction. So, again, you're sitting there in this room with all these agents saying, sign with me, sign with me. And I'm sitting there going, why would you, why would I, you, know, why would you want to sign me? You know, I've got a bum knee at the minute. I can barely walk. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm actually going to be ready. Um, so, it was it was kind of a little bit of, a little bit of lingering doubt in my mind. But then once... You know, the assurances were made like by different agents that I spoke to saying, like, look, you know, we'll we'll explain explain your situation and they'll bring you in when when they see fit or what have you. It, potentially you could go in January, potentially you could go, you know, at the end of the summer, you know, we'll see we'll play it by ear depending on your, your rehab and things like that. So once that kind of eased my mind in a sense, it was then, okay, where do you want to play? You know, um, what are you prepared to accept? Um, and there were a lot of there were a lot of offers from a lot of different places, and I, I was kind of focused on. I really want to stay somewhere where I know there's going to be a lot of competition, um, whether it's France, Italy, Spain. You know, were the, the top three that I was kind of thinking about. Um, but at the time, you've got to understand, back then, there was no such thing as a bottom player. So I'd have been going in as a straight international. So the competition was massive then, because then, obviously, I've got to apply my trade against all these top Americans coming out of university at the same time as me, um, which made it slightly difficult. But um, having the resume I had, luckily, it kind of sat, it, it fell in with, these top Americans that came out of big schools. But, um, yeah, it was it was really important for me to, to play in one of the top leagues um, once I left university. But the whole process in itself literally took about two months. From the time I started talking, like, I signed with an agent, which was literally right after the final fours, it took about two months for everything to kind of take place and get set up and uh, for me to sign my first contract. And... When I did, I it was surreal. It was actually surreal because I'm like, wow, this is actually it, this is for real. This is actually happening. Am I actually gonna go and be a pro? Someone's actually gonna 
pay me to to play this sport I love this is like Christmas so yeah it took about two months but yeah it all came about and it all worked out but it was uh yeah it was uh you're still thinking you're gonna wake up and it's not it's not happened so, so you, yeah. you decided to sign in Italy, right? That was that was the that was the first contract out of school. Um, yeah. How was the transition from you know college life to the pros? Like, what are the things that stick out? Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that talk about the difference between, I guess, the provision the provision you get at a lot of Division One schools in the states is is better than what you sometimes get at a professional level in in Europe, right? Um, so, kind of what what yeah, like I guess what how was that transition and and I guess the differences for you between between you know college life and pro life? Um, it was difficult to start it because it, it, it was complete opposite of what you were used to for four years. Like four years, everything was literally laid on a plate for you. I mean, you didn't have to think about washing your kit. Something as simple as that, washing your kit. You didn't have to worry about meal times because you just walk in walk in into the into the cafeteria and eat. Um, you didn't have to worry about how, you know what time you're getting to the training, things or how you're going to get there. You just you just go. Um, so when I got to when I got to Italy, everything was on me. Everything I'd wash my own kit, I'd wash my own training kit. You know, I had to supply my own shoes. Um, you know, it, it was just simple. But, you know, thank God I know how to cook, but you know I had to cook for myself and. Like it was absolutely crazy, you know. You had to entertain yourself. You didn't have study hall and all this crazy stuff. So it was like, wow, I've got to stand on my own two feet here. <laughs> literally, everything's on me. If I'm late for training, that was on me. You know, I've got to make sure I leave in enough time because of traffic and things like that. You know, the car I had sometimes it started, sometimes it didn't. You know, it's <laughs> just literally like, okay. I found myself half the time sprinting down the road having because the car wouldn't start, running to train and things like that. It was it was transitioning from everything being given to you and, and you not having to think about anything to you've got to think about everything. Have I got enough stuff in my bag? Have I packed the right stuff? Have I everything you had to think about everything. Things you didn't ever think about whilst you were in college, you had to think about as a pro and I struggled at the beginning because it was like oh my god what am I doing have I got everything what am I doing have I eaten enough have I wow it was it was tough but once you settled into it it became became normal it just it was just like ah all right this is what I'm doing no problem were there many other um British female players playing on the continent at that point playing pro no were there any no oh really the only one (laughs) Just me, um, which was, it was funny because um, because I come out of the states. I didn't I didn't come from 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 the UK to Europe. I'd come from the states to Europe. Everybody assumed I was American until I opened my mouth. Everybody, everywhere I played, you would hear the coaches or you'd hear the players going, "Pick that American up." I'm like, who? Because <laughs> it's me. No, I'm not American. Until I opened my mouth, and they're like, where are you from? And I'm like, from London. Like, what? And, and, you know, I even had one player ask me, what, London, Texas? And I'm like, no, the real London. You know, the one in England. But, and it was crazy. Yeah, they, they, I was the only one. And it was really, really, really strange because, you know, you're on all these different teams or what have you, and everybody just assumes you're American. They see me and go, oh, you're American. No, I'm not. <laughs> 
Did you feel like a kind of like a I guess a flag bearer for the UK, like you were representing as the as the only one on the continent? Did you kind of take pride in that and, and feel like you were trying to, I don't know, on some level? Uh, I feel like a lot of British players have a maybe a bit of a chip on their shoulder because the perception of the game here is basically that it doesn't exist or it's not very good. Like, did you kind of have that mentality at all? And yeah, how, how were you approaching it? To be honest, um, I didn't. I never felt like a flag bearer. I really didn't. And and I'll tell you a quick story, really, because when I when I graduated and it was kind of word got out that I was coming back to Europe. Obviously, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of offers here in in the UK. And I was like, okay, let's sit and think about it. And um, because I opted to go and play in Europe, I kind of got labelled as the traitor. How dare you not come back to England and play? Why? Why? And you know, the, the, obviously the concept has changed and the, uh, the ideal has changed now. But at the time, it was you go to the states, you come back and play in England. But I didn't want to do that. I still wanted to push myself. I still wanted to see how far, far I could go. So when I decided to, to to play in Europe, it was well, oh, you're a bit of a traitor not coming back. And that's how I felt. I felt like, what am I? You know. Me opting to play in Europe, am, am I being a bit of a traitor? Am, you know, and so I carried that for a while, and it really did bother me for a bit. So no, I didn't feel like a flag bearer for the UK at all. I just felt like I'd let people down, like I hadn't come back and played in England, but I didn't want to. I wanted to, if I had the opportunity to play, I was going to go play wherever and 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 experience it and still try and improve on my game. It wasn't about you know I went to the UK, you know the US for four years and then came back and then that was it but so that's kind of flack I got um when people knew I was back in Europe it was well you should have come back here you what why have you why have you gone to Europe obviously if this was now in 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 these days yeah it would have been a no-brainer you just you and you go if you got an opportunity to play in Europe you go I assume you could earn a lot more in Europe than you could in England as well or is that not right that was that was, and, and that also kind of played a part because the offers that I'd gotten to come back and to come back and play in the UK was I would have to pay to play, <laughs> which was at the time all right. Yeah, you you, you you kind of all right. You take that on board, but my thought my thought process was wait, I'm you asking me to pay you to play basketball, whereas there's a team out there that's willing to pay me to do exactly the same thing. And it's a better league, and it's a better experience for me. No brainer. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, it was weird. <laughs> so after you, after you, uh, you turned pro, you did the first season in Italy, and then you moved to Spain. And, uh, and I'm all right thinking that was where you first won your first title, your first t- t- title in the pros. Kind of what are your memories yeah. of that, and like I guess the putting together of the roster, the team, and uh, and your role within it. Um, that was a, it was the game changer that year. Um, I probably that was probably one of the best teams I played on in my in my career. Um, absolutely amazing players. Pretty much every single player on that team played for the Spanish national team at the time. Um, and the coach we had, God rest him, um, was one considered one of the best coaches in the world at the time. Um, a Russian guy named Gamelski. He coached the Russian national team in the Olympics and uh, his way of looking at basketball and his way of coaching was 
absolutely immense. It was, I learned so much from him. And uh, to come into that program, to get an opportunity to come into that program, we were on it from from day one. He had a goal, he had a vision, and we were going to achieve it regardless of what anybody else thought. And the way we played, we were able to adapt and adjust to pretty much any team we played. And it was just because of him. It was just the way he did things. And, uh, yeah, we ran away with the title. I think we were, we were done with the title pretty much halfway through the season. We knew. Really? Yeah, we were, we were just dominant. We, we just laid teams out. We were, we were ruthless. Um, and that's how he wanted it. Um, and we were, that year also, we... Um, we played in Euroleague and we played. We we fell a bit short, and I think that was just down to scheduling of games. We had so many games at the same time. We fell short, but you went to the final four, though, right? Uh, not that year. Not with not that year. Not um, not, not with them. Um, that came later with um, when I played in Italy. But he, the way he had things set up, it was a magical. It was a magical season. We just everything was flawless. It was just crazy and then midway through that season was when this Bosman rule was talked about and how are they going to do it and 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 from the female side of things I was one of the first Bosman players um because obviously you know I was at the time when I signed I was considered an international yeah and then by halfway through the season I was then considered a European so then they were able to then bring in another American because we had one and then myself, and then they were able to bring in another American um, to add to the, to the to to our team, which made us even stronger. Um, but it was unique because it was, again, you, you go into games and and coaches are protesting because they're like, you can't have three Americans because there's one, two, three right there, and I'm like, I'm British. Here's my passport. Look at it. It's British. And I had to literally carry my passport at every single game I went to at, from that point forward yeah. because they were insisting that I was American. They were insisting on it. They were like, nope, she's definitely American. We can prove it. And I'm like, go on, then. In, in, some way, that must have been, in, in some way, that must have been quite flattering that, you know, the Americans always seen as the best players. And, you know, here you are from England and, and they're all all accusing you and thinking, that, assuming that you're an American. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see it as flattery. I just thought. I thought it was funny. I really <laughs> thought it was hilarious because I'm sitting there going, "Really? Come on, come on! Listen to my accent. That tells you enough. I'm not putting it on. Here's my passport. It clearly says I'm British. Let's move on. But it was every single game that we played. It was the same story, and I was like, oh. and it went on for quite a few years. To be fair, I literally had to carry every game. I had to carry my passport. Wow. Just to prove that I wasn't American. So after that year in Spain, you went back to Italy, right? With a different Correct. team. Yeah. Um, and it was in Italy where you you then, like you were just saying, you made the Euroleague final four one year. You won Italian Cup. You got the MVP there. Um, I guess had a lot of. I would assume that was was that your most professional success that you had in in a, in a condensed period of time when you're talking about winning titles and and everything else. Uh yeah yeah um. You know, I went to Como, um, and at the time, I, I think they were like, they had won the title like 13, 14 years straight. Um, they had the best players, they had the best coach. Um, the whole setup was so professional. Um, it was one of the first teams I'd ever been to where there was a female program 
that was higher regarded than the men's program. We had our own gym. Nobody trained in it but us. So it was junior girls, senior women. No men's team was allowed in that gym unless they paid to be there. Um, and it was unique. It was a unique situation. They were such a highly regarded uh, program in Italy as well as Europe because they'd been European champions as well. Um, so they had they had this reputation, and to, to get to play with them was an amazing experience. I mean, I played with the likes of Teresa Witherspoon and Bridget Gordon, and it blew my mind because you, you, you're looking at these guys going, "You've come from amazing programs. You've done amazing things in your career." And to play with them week in week out was just mind blowing. But I learned so much um, on and off the court. Um, but yeah that period of time I played two years there and we pretty much won it all the only thing we came up short on was it was year league final that was that was my only that only sticking point in my career we were that close we were that close it was agonizing but you finished runners up right in that in that you finished runners up we finished runners up and it was yeah still stings it was it was agonising, but you learn you learnt, I learned from it, and you know, it wasn't the it wasn't the last time we went to a final, but it was, yeah. But that year, that was the team that was going to get it done. That 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 year was the team we were going to win the treble, and uh, to fall short by two, you know, yeah. Wow. It still it still it still sits with me. It still sits with me even now, and it's years ago, but. If there's one part of my career that if things could have been different, that would have been that game. It was, we gave everything. We, it was just a great game to play and it was a great game to watch, I hope. But yeah, it was agonising to, to, to lose by two right at the death as well. And ah, oh well. It, it is what it is. Exactly. Um, so in, in, in amongst all of this, just for, to, I guess, for context for people, obviously the WNBA didn't exist. Uh, so around 96, 97, well, it was 96, I think, was when it was first founded. And then the first season was 97, I think. Correct, it was. But kind of, do you remember like first getting wind that, you know, a new league was being set up and kind of, did you have in your head, oh, you know, potentially this could be, this could be an option for me. Um, what was the, when was the first time that you heard of the, of the WNBA? Um... So, my agent at the time also represented Teresa Weatherspoon and Bridget Gordon, who I was playing with at the time. And they'd been wind of this potential league um, getting started. And I remember sitting down to lunch with both of them, because we lived in the same apartment complex, um, and discussing it, because obviously my agent had discussed it with them, you know, potentially, you know, you guys are, you know, gonna, you're definitely going to go when how how it's all going to work we don't know yet we don't know the fine points and i remember sitting there going that would be amazing that would be absolutely awesome that but i'm not there that's not me that's not my level that's that's way above me but it would be absolutely amazing that was my thought um and then as it came to be that yes it's going ahead I was sitting again at lunch with both of them and they were like, oh, we've got something to tell you. And I'm like, what's that? And, and, and Spoon took out this bag she had and she had a New York Liberty stuff. And I'm sitting there blown out my mind. Oh my God, what? And so she had that. And all I could say to her was, 
I want a t-shirt. I want a t-shirt. When you go and play, send me a picture. Like, yeah, no problem. I'll hook you up with whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then Bridget went to Sacramento. And I was like, again, I want a t-shirt. That's all. Yeah, you know, I just I just need all of that. And she was like, yeah, but, you know, you could play. And I was like, yeah, right, okay. Next conversation. And we just moved on from it. Um, and I'll tell you the story really, really quick, how it all came about. But um, I never considered it. Never. I kept saying to Spoon, I'm going to come to New York and I'm watching play. And she was like, yeah, I'll hook you up with tickets. Wicked. That was, that was it. No other thought. And uh, my agent came up and said, I'll put your name in. And I thought he was joking. I went, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay, fine. And left it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Um, basically, when the draft went on, I knew nothing about it. I knew, didn't know when the draft was, didn't know anything about it. I knew he put my name in, but I dismissed it because I thought he was joking. It, 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 I wasn't at that level, never going to happen. And um, it must have been 10, 11 o'clock at night. My phone rang and I'll pick it up. This is Renee Brown from President of WNBA. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly how I spoke to her. I was like, yeah. She's like, congratulations, you've gone in the fourth round. I went, yeah, right. And I put the phone down. I just hung up on her. I was like, yeah, I was like, whatever. Put hung the phone up. I went back to sleep. Phone rang again about 10 minutes later. Andrea, yes, this is Renee Brown. Yeah. You've been picked in the fourth round. You're going you're going to Charlotte. Congratulations. And the way I where I, how I where our apartments were, my apartment linked onto Teresa's apartment and Bridget's apartment so I opened my door and I yelled at her whilst with the phone in my hand going you're not funny I said stop playing you're not funny and hung the phone up and shut my door so it must have been about I don't know half an hour or so later get a knock on my door open the door Chris Wither is standing there she goes um can you please go and answer my phone and so I walked in I was like what are you talking about? She just answer the phone. So I answer the phone. She's like, Andrea, this is Renee Brown for real. This is seriously Renee Brown. I'm calling from New York right now. Um, this is not a prank. You've gone fourth round. You're going to Charlotte. Congratulations. And I dropped the phone and just screamed. I just screamed because I could not understand what was being told to me. I, I couldn't get it. I was like, you've got to be joking. Like, seriously, no. And it was a couple of days later when my package arrived with all the stuff in it. I was like, oh, my good God, this is real. So I called my parents and screamed down the phone at them and called Mark and all sorts. And it was insane, absolutely insane time. But, yeah, that, that's how it all came about. Wow. It was too crazy. How did they do the, uh, the that early formation of the league? Because that, that was obviously... That was the, so, because obviously your two teammates had already said that they were playing for two, you know, yeah. New York and Sacramento. So, so what was it? They decided the, there was eight franchises to begin with, right? So they decided the eight franchises, and then they were allowed to sign certain players, and then they did a draft as well. Or like, how how did it work? Yeah. So essentially, what they did was when they decided, okay, this is this is the structure we're going to go with. We need to assign franchise players per squad. So I think they went with two per squad, um, and with them being big names. You know, as in the states as well as in Europe, there was a pool for them 
So a whole bunch of names went in and there was a pool for them. Um, and then obviously coaches and GMs and all those, those guys got involved into who was going to go where. But that was done, I would say, early, early to mid-August. So we weren't back in pre-season yet. Um, so that was done, but it wasn't announced. It wasn't announced. Um, and then when they actually officially announced that there was going to be the WNBA, then obviously all of that got announced. And then the ones that weren't picked from that pool of franchise players, they went first round. Um, and then after that, that's when they then had, from the second to however many rounds there were, that's when they then selected the remaining players and then had invitations for other players to come in behind that. Right. But um, yeah, that's kind of how they structured it, where they um, they they announced the, the they announced the league, but they've been working behind the scenes to at least get the faces of each team kind of like signed and ready to go so that's basically how it worked. so then that that first season it was 97-98 um your first season in WNBA uh yeah. kind of how, how was that how did it compare to Europe like I guess do you have memories of your first game and sort of being out there and kind of thinking I can't believe this is actually happening like well yeah what are your 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 memories around the I guess playing for the Charlotte Sting um again it went back to being like Christmas Day so you, you go from playing in Europe where you're doing everything for yourself and, you you know, you're taking care of yourself on a daily basis back to being, it was literally, for me, Christmas Day. I got in, went straight into, you know, into training, in, in, into practice and uh, you, walk into, you walk into the locker room and everything's just laid out. Shoes, training stuff, playing stuff, travel gear. There's this massive bag sitting there with your name on it and your number on it and you can't take it in. You just, I couldn't take it in. It was like, is this actually for real? Like, wow. Um, and then the whole hoopla, you know, before the first game, there was so much media stuff. There was so many appearances. And, you know, I tell, I tell a story. Of, you know, I came out of training one day and I need to go to the store to, to get some stuff. And, you know, I happen to have my, my gear on or whatever because I hadn't had time to get changed. And I walk in the store and there's a there's an announcement over the tannoy saying I'm in the store. Like, Andrew Congress is in the store. And, and I remember turning and seeing people run round coming up the aisle at me with, like, pieces of paper and all sorts of... I was like, this, what is this craziness? Like, what on earth? And it's because they were so excited about a new league starting and the fact there was one in Charlotte and... People were just excited to see you and meet you and say hello and get a photo and it was absolutely immense. So that whole run up was just it was hard to take in because you you you're doing so much in appearances and, and you can only focus on the one thing that you're there for. But you know, you're being pulled away with going to, you know, talk to schools and, and media and there are it was absolutely crazy times. But then that first game, I'll never forget it. Never, ever forget it. The, 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 the whole spectacle before it started. The, you know, the, it was, for me, I've never seen, even when I was in college, you never had anything like that. It was, you know, you had the mascot coming from the roof and, you know, all these cheerleaders and all these kids. And I'm thinking... I've got to focus on the game, but I can't focus on this game because of all this stuff that's going on and fireworks and oh my word, it was it was mad. But then once that ball goes up, 
you forget everything else. You're there for a job. And again, for me, I need to keep my job. I don't want to be here for a couple of games and that that be it. I want to be here for the season. I want to I want to enjoy every single moment of this. So it was it was magical for me because I was able to start. I was a starter and uh, yeah, one of the best experiences in basketball terms. One of the best experiences of my life was was starting that game and playing as hard as we did and the people that we played against. I mean, we're talking well beers at the time playing against us and, and you know, on, on the same team as me. And just to see that amount of talent, that amount of experience, people that you've heard of, people that you've seen play, people that you'd, you know, that you'd admired were on the court with you. It, it's it's mind-blowing, but it was so magical for me. I... I went to bed that night and I couldn't sleep because I was just thinking about, oh my God, who have I just played against? This was amazing. We just did this. We just did that. And here's another game coming in the next couple of days. Got to do it. Got to do it again. How do I get myself up to go and do this again? So, yeah, it was absolutely magical and one that I'll, I'll cherish forever. Did you feel like the level in the WNBA was? that much higher than what you'd been experiencing in, in, in Europe, whether it's in the domestic leagues or in, in the EuroLeague? Way higher. Way higher. And I say that because, not just because of the way the game was played and not just because, of, you know, it's a WNBA. I'm talking, there are games what I've played in Europe, and, you know, with the national team and, and, you know, playing, you know, professionally in Europe or what have you, where... It's, it's you don't take a day off, but it's an easier game than than most games that you play. Every single game I played in WNBA was top notch. You could not relax for a split second. It would the the level was so ridiculously high. At points, I questioned myself whether I could actually cope with it because there was no downtime to it. Every single game that you play, you know, you've just gone up against Cheryl Swoops. Now you're going up against Lisa Leslie. You're going up against the best of the best, and you've got to be on your A game every single game. And it just didn't stop. It didn't stop. And especially the position I was playing, I knew if I didn't bring my A game, I was going to get creamed every night. It was, it was one of those. And so in terms of level, you couldn't get any higher than that if you tried. You couldn't. It just... Even with the national team, you know, some teams you play, yeah, you, you know you're going to get beat. You just, yeah, you, you know that. But you're not facing those amount of stars in one team every every game that you play. In a WNBA, the amount of stars they had on, on their team that you were facing every single night was insane. It was actually insane. And then were you still, I'm assuming the WNBA season was, was uh, during the, the summer months and then the Europe, and then you'd do the, would you carry on playing in Europe during the season? Was that still the, the setup back then? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, to a certain degree, with some, with some players, it still is. So basically, I finished the WNBA season and then went straight back to Europe. I literally had maybe a week or two to kind of have some downtime. But that downtime was spent with the team. So I would fly back back to Europe and it would literally be, yes, I check in with the team. I've seen the team docs and things like that. But then, you know, I'd, I'd talk with the coaches and potentially I'll just, you know, go for a run each day or I would, you know, hit the gym or whatever. But 
in terms of pre-season, I really didn't need to really have a pre-season because I was generally quite fit. It was just making sure that I was ticking over. So I would have like a week or two of downtime, or if you call it downtime, and then rejoin the team back mid- midway through their pre-season. And that was kind of pretty much how it worked um, each year. You know, I think for for context for people, the majority of the games that you played in WNBA, you started. And, you know, when you're talking about there's only there's only eight teams, eight WNBA teams, to be a starter on one of the eight best teams in the world, I, I think puts into context for people the level that you are and you were playing at. Um, you obviously did that, did that that first season in Charlotte and then you had a you played with Orlando, Orlando Miracle. When I look at your numbers, it, it seemed like you were contributing. You obviously uh, you had these like solid numbers. Um, was there any part of you that was disappointed your WNBA career wasn't longer, like, and you kind of then sort of stuck to Europe, or like how how did the I guess the transition away from the WNBA happen? Um, to, to be honest, I think the amount of time I had in WNBA was right for me at the time. When I look at it. Um, the deciding factor for me was I had signed, I think I'd signed to play in France and we'd had a long, long season because we, we, you know, we won the French cup, we've won the French title and we went to the, we went to the final of the EuroLeague. So that was a lot of games in one season. And towards the end of that season, I broke my foot, um, which was, which wasn't expected. It was, it was just a random fluke thing. I stepped out of bed. I felt a pop. Went to see, uh, went to the doctors, and they said you need an MRI. Went for the MRI, broken foot. So I was out for like four weeks. Um, so I consulted the team doctors and said, well, how how come this has happened? You know, I'm gen, I'm, I'm really fit. I'm, I mean, I'm in great condition. And they're like, it's just, it's overuse. It's overuse. You're playing, you're playing too many games. And you're not getting any rest. And that was literally from going and playing the full season in Europe and then playing Euroleague behind that. And then go into WNBA where you go straight back into train into into training to then play the amount of games that we were playing. My body just couldn't cope. It literally we sat down um, with the coaches and, 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 and the team doctors and was like, right, something has to change. It's either you play in Europe and you don't play in WNBA, or you play in WNBA but you don't play in Europe. And that was a choice I had to make. And at the time, yeah, it was the right choice to make because for me. As much as I love playing, love, love playing in WNBA, I also enjoy playing in Europe more because there was more to it. It was yeah, WNBA is a very short period of time. Boom, 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 then it's done. And then I, for me, I was like, well, what am I going to do the rest of the season? You know, you know, I'm just going to be, you know, relaxed, chilled, and then waiting to go back to the WNBA again. So I made the decision. I really enjoyed playing in Europe. I, I, I love the competition. I love, you know, the fact that I was playing in, in good teams that were playing in either the Europa Cup or EuroLeague. And that's what I wanted. So I made that choice. And I was like, you know what? I've enjoyed my time in WNBA. I'll always cherish it. You know, yeah, maybe I could have played for a couple of years more. But I didn't want to run the risk of, you know, I broke my foot just getting out of bed. I don't want to, you know, do something else where it, it then hampers Either playing in Europe or the WNBA, I didn't want I didn't want that to happen, so I made the choice of yeah, I want to just go back to Europe and play in Europe. I think like there are players now that obviously can earn a lot more in Europe than they can in in the WNBA, uh, despite I guess the higher profile of the WNBA. Um, at that time, was it the same for you? Like, were you in terms of your earnings and stuff? Did, was it better financially for you to be in Europe than in the WNBA? I'm just going to get my laptop charger because my laptop's about to cut out. But if you just answer that question, I'll be back in two seconds. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it was it was it was it, financially it was a lot better to, um, to to play in Europe than it was the WNBA. Don't get me wrong, the pay in the WNBA was was okay, was decent. I mean, I'm, I'm you know never sniff at it, but um, it was financially better to play in Europe, um, and I knew playing in Europe that contracts would would come my way, regardless of where I played, what country I played in, I knew contracts would come my way. Whereas the WNBA, you just don't know. I mean, my experience in playing the WNBA, I saw so many players come through our doors and be there for 10 days, five days. You know, players that have literally signed a contract and then been waived before the season started. I knew it was a cutthroat league. I knew that you had to bring your A game or you could potentially be gone, you could be traded, you could be waived. And that could be from day to day. I saw players come in to start training and literally didn't even make it to the training floor because they'd been waived that morning or they'd been traded that morning. Um, and for me, the instability of knowing that, yes, you've got a contract, but it could be ended in, in, in a moment, you know, because it, at the end of the day, it is a business as well. So, you know, coaches are always looking for the best players for their for their teams, and you know, if that means making a trade or waiving someone to bring somebody else in, that's what they'll do. Mm. Whereas in Europe, it was a little bit more concrete. Um, unless you were really having an off season, you're pretty much going to be there for the season. You're at least going to see your contract out, and if you stay there next year, fine. If you go somewhere else, that's fine. So those things also came into play. Um, whether you stay or not. And then for for. Just out of interest, you talked about sort of the, the toll on your body when you're playing WNBA in the summer and then obviously your, your regular season, domestic season in Europe and then, of course, the EuroLeague season as well. How many games were you playing on a on a year-to-year basis like at that during that period? You're looking at... If I told it all up, you're looking at... For domestic, you're looking at probably between 20, 22 games. That's just domestic. Add on top group group stage, and you're talking another 10 group stage there and back, as well as your quarters, your semis, and then your finals. Yeah, you know, wow. And then you go WNBA. I can't even remember how many games you played in that season. You're looking at You're looking at close to at least 50 games, if not more than that, yeah. in total, WNBA and Europe in, in included. Um, and a, a lot of that, when you've come off such a hard season domestically, plus your cup games, plus EuroLeague, then you get that small break and then you go in again, and then you've got games back to back to back to back, because we were playing every two to three days, if not back to back games. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It, it, it weighs yeah. a ton. A massive toll. So then, the, the, I'm aware of time here. So there's there's obviously a lot of years left. So I'm, we're going to kind of give a brief overview of of uh, sort of post WNBA. You obviously had that. Uh, so you had the season in France, which was a very successful one as well for you in terms of titles and uh, and success. Um, and you're in Turkey. Did you win in Turkey as well? I didn't stay in Turkey, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> the club ran into financial difficulties. And that was Fenerbahce, right? Um, yeah, and they had to they had to make a decision because it was must, we had two we were the only team that had two Europeans 
Um, so they had to make a decision on whether they were just going to play with the Turkish players or they were going to keep us on. Um, and then they decided right before Christmas that they were just going to go with the Turkish players. So we opted to cut our contract so that we could go and play somewhere else um, for the for the remainder of the season rather than try and wait out and see what they actually are actually going to do. Yeah. Um, at that time we were told well we won't be able to pay you either so you hanging around and then we're not being able to pay you as well um, doesn't make any sense so we we opted to to terminate the contracts to go elsewhere so that we could have an option to go somewhere else um and you ended up back in spain after that yeah yeah so it, it kind of like i said lucky i had like a really good agent who kind of went straight into attack mode and was like contacting teams you know, you're going to need anyone in January, you know, or, or, or potentially right before the playoffs start. But I was lucky that I went in January. So, yeah, it kind of worked out um, right away to go somewhere else. And then, yeah, I looked down the list and, you know, you then your you time in Spain and Italy. And obviously the country that, that, that stands out amongst all the others was South Korea. Um <laughs> Can you talk about that and how, how that came about? And also, like, um, they have a draft system there, right, as well, I think. I, is it they have a draft system? So you ended up getting selected in the draft. Um, yeah, kind of what, what was that experience like? Obviously, having played in, in Europe and America your entire career, that was the one place you played that was a little bit further away. Yeah, it was, for me, um, because, I'd, because I'd opted not to return to the WNBA, obviously, I had a summer off, which was rare. Um so my agent contacted me and said, listen, um, your name's been entered into, you know, the draft in South Korea. And I just looked at him and went, what? You know, he, like, are you serious? And he was like, yeah. Because um, obviously then what they did was they took players that weren't playing in the WNBA or, you know, either been waived or traded or released or what have, what have you. And they put them into a pool. Um, and basically my agent said, yeah, you've been drafted. Do you want to go? So it was, it was an option. I didn't have to go, but you want to go? And I was like, well, something different. Another challenge. You know, another path to my career or whatever. All right, then let's go. So, yeah, I went to South Korea in the summer. And it was, uh, yeah, it was it was interesting, to say the least, but it was good fun. I enjoyed it. Um, again, another adjustment in how things are done. But, yeah, you know, take it as it, as it was. And then coming back to England, so you lost the last sort of phase of your life, you're playing last career, sorry, uh, you're playing for um, Ronda, which was uh, in Wales, right? Were you player yeah. coach there, or were you just were you player for a bit and then coaching, or? I yeah, I started off as I started off as a player. It was all kind of like tied into um, me coming back from playing in Europe because obviously you go and play in Europe, it's very rare that they stop or allow players to come out of season to go and play with the national team. And obviously the Commonwealth Games is something that's unique, that isn't covered in, in, in Spain or Italy or anything like that. So the decision was made, kind of like talking with the likes of like Rad Miller and, and people like that, that, um, okay, let's bring you back to the UK to play in the UK. Um, with, with Obviously the, the English league was then going to stop mid-January early February for us to then fly out to Melbourne to compete in the in the Commonwealth Games and obviously this was a big big issue because obviously it was the stepping stone that we needed to progress with 2012 so um, I had a long conversation with Ed Miller and um, 
opted to go to Ronda. Um, again, the reason I, I chose to do that was because they were also playing um, in Europa Cup. So obviously, I then get to still keep involved in playing in Europe as well as as, as well as domestically. So that was it was an easy choice for me to make, you know, because you know I could have gone to other clubs, but this was the only club that was playing in Europe, and that was what I was about. So yeah, I went to Ronda, and uh, yeah, we had to stop mid-season to go to go to the Commonwealth Games, and then come back and then restart and then start the playoffs and things like that. It was a little bit difficult, but yeah, we managed to get it done. You then you did a year with Barking, uh, you know, and then kind of I guess what, as your career, your playing days sort of wound down. Did mm. you find that difficult to make that transition away from playing the game? Did you have one one eye on it for the last few years and kind of were thinking about what was next? Um, I guess how were you approaching uh, sort of stopping playing? Yeah, I had a obviously I had a I had a conversation um, with my family about it um, because. I was picking up way too many injuries. I was picking up little things that were taking absolutely forever to, to heal and, and get better. And, you know, at, my, at that age, I knew there was only so much left. Um, so I was kind of realistic in in what I wanted to do. Um, and, and being at Ronda um, kind of got thrown, uh, you know, my, my second season there kind of got thrown into um, the player coach role because the coach that we had unfortunately couldn't continue because he was a school teacher. So he couldn't continue to keep giving up time, going to Europe and coming back and things like that midweek. So I fell in love with coaching when I started doing it there. And I knew that there was an avenue that there was, you know, that I could realistically retire and still keep within the game and still, still do things within the game that, you know, that I love. So that kind of helped the process and then going to Barking and having, again, having a long conversation with Mark about, you know, what I wanted to do next, how that was going to look, how, you know, how that was going to work out. Because obviously the opportunities in, in, in England aren't that great for, for coaches to be paid. It's more, more voluntary and things like that. There's only a very few unique situations where you can actually get paid and it's, it's not even that much most of the time it's that you, you generally have to have a job as well as coaching you might get like you know like a stipend or something like that but um yeah it was a long conversation as to what I wanted to do next and uh yeah we had a long conversation and you know I'd already gotten the bug from coaching and, and decided that's what I wanted to do and that's how we're going to move forward so the actual movement from being a player to then play a coach to then coaching came quite naturally. Um, it was quite a, an easy pro, process for me. And it was quite easy for me actually to kind of say goodbye to the playing part and move on to the coaching part. I think I think a few years before that, my, I mentally checked out in terms of um, pushing myself beyond where I needed to push myself. Um, I, I, was, I was ready to, to kind of take a step back and watch the younger kids come through and, and do their thing and kind of aid in that way rather than, I guess in a way, kind of still prove I could do it. Um, and then it, it was kind of like that. It dawned on me, all right, Andrew, stop. <laughs> You've done enough. Um, if, if you're still trying to prove yourself at this age, there's something wrong. So, um, yeah, it was an easy process for me to go, yeah, enough, enough, done. Move on. Okay, so... Going to do a quick fire round just to finish up with some yeah. short, shorter questions. Uh, starting with, 
Oh, your favourite basketball memory? <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> my, there's so many. There's so many. Um, you give me a handful guess, if it's easier. I, I, guess, I guess my favourite would be the first time I played for England, like senior level. I think that's my favourite memory. Um, to know that you've achieved what you've always dreamt about. I mean, forget, you know, yeah, people are saying, well, what about the WME? What about this? What about that? For me, it was always about representing my, t my country first, always, before anything else I did personally in terms of my career. It was that first time I stepped in the court as a, as a senior. That was my favourite memory. It's it's something that will live with me. I'm... I don't remember too much about the game. It, was, it kind of went like really quick, but to stand there and hear your national anthem at that time, at that age, there couldn't. It wasn't anything better than that for me. Hardest player to guard slash best player you ever played against? Oh, um, jeez. Wow. Um. Wow, I would say Lisa Leslie, um, because she she was just unbelievably quick for someone her height and and a shape. Um, she was just difficult. You just couldn't get a hold of her. You because she like she wasn't your atypical post player. She could do it all. She she could step outside. She could shoot. She had quick feet. And you just couldn't get a body on her. And, and that was kind of what I kind of pride myself on defensively, was be able, to be, able, be able to body somebody. And I just couldn't body her. I, just, I used to struggle with her so much, just trying to get a hold of her, just trying to make sure, you know, try and limit her touches, try and limit her shots. And, you know, you know the great player that she is. That, it became hard. It became really, really hard. So I'd, I'd say she was definitely up there in the top five of players that were difficult to guard. And then the best uh, British female player that you've played against? Play against? <laughs> yeah, well, like practice or like training camps, or whatever. Like when you're talking about the the all-time British greats that you've played with, played against, who who comes to mind? Easy. I think an easy answer really is Carol Harris because I I trained with her, but I also played against her because obviously when Crystal Palace closed, um, she went to Northampton. And um, obviously, I, I, I went on my journey. But she was one of those players that never stayed still. One of those players that you just... She made me work so hard. So, so hard. Like, she could do it all. And you couldn't read her. And I think that was my biggest problem with it, is I couldn't read her. Um, I, I couldn't read whether she was going to stop on a dime and just hit a shot, whether she was going to go past me. You know, you know, give and goes, all that type of thing. And she, she made it so difficult, but I really really think definitely Carol Paris yeah there's no doubt best coach you've ever played for Mark Clark end of conversation <laughs> he'll, he'll say he'll say differently but 100% Mark Clark what do you think separates Mark from, from the other coaches that you played for Um, with Mark obviously Mark was there at the beginning of my journey so to from where I started to where I ended up, I attribute a lot to him. Um, the fact that he pushed me, the fact that he kept me grounded. Whereas, 
you know, other coaches were trying to blow my head up and, and you know, you can be this, you can be that. He kept me grounded and he kept me sane. And even though there were years in between where I never played for him, he still kept me grounded. He still kept me pushing forward. He still kept me thinking about the little parts of my game that I needed to improve. Um, just with simple conversations. Um, and he just, I believe I probably, and he'll, again, he'll disagree. I probably played my best when I played for him because I just wanted to prove him right. I wanted to show him that the, the time he took on me was well worth it. The best individual performance of your career? Oh my God. Could not answer that. I, not being funny, but I don't, I ever think, I never thought about perform. I, I could tell you if I had a good game, I could tell you if I had a bad game. I couldn't tell you what I did. I never, I was never, ever, I never will be focused on that. It was, I could say, yeah, I've had better games than other games, but I can't tell you my best. I can't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. And then uh, what do you want your playing legacy to be? <laughs> my playing legacy when when you know when people talk about you to the younger generation coming through like what, what would you like to be remembered as what, what would you like them to say I, I i guess just someone that loved this game beyond all compare really just someone that just wanted to to, to I guess just wanted to 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 be the best that I could possibly be. Doesn't matter the comparisons to anybody else. Just I wanted to be the best that I could be, and I wasn't going to stop until I was happy with that. Not what everybody else said until I was happy with that. So I, I guess you know I was I was you know I, I guess when people you know talk about me, they just say yeah she gave it everything. She she just. She gave the best that she could, and she gave the best the best that she could, and and that's about it, really. I, I can't really, I've never really thought about that. I don't know. I don't. Know. That's a, a perfect place to leave it. Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I know we've, again, even I, I warned you beforehand that I'd like to keep it to under ninety minutes. I failed again, um, but no, I really appreciate it. It's an incredible story, and uh, I think people are going to really enjoy it. So yeah, thanks for taking the time, and um, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Okay, sure. Thank you. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.